Hey, my name's Alex and welcome to Alex Listens. This is the place where I talk about things like philosophy and politics and identity and race and mental health and psychology and that kind of stuff. So today I, well, me and my friend Liam in 2018, in late 2018, we interviewed Julian Burnside. And if you're from Melbourne, if you're from Australia, you'll be familiar with this person because I guess he's one of Australia's foremost human rights and asylum seeker advocates. Um, And the reason why I'm reposting this interview, even though I guess, you know, 2018 was a little while ago, is because a lot's changed since we had the interview in Julian's life. Um, And there are some amazing quotes from this interview that would just Well, you know, I I listened to the interview again recently and it's just shocking. Like, you know, he says things like he has no interest in politics and, um, you know, politics isn't for him. And when I asked him political questions, he shied away from answering them and said things like, oh, you know, politics isn't for me. I'm not going to talk about political things. But then, you know, fast forward a few months, 2019, um, he runs for the in the federal election. He runs for the seat of Kuyong. Um, in Melbourne's east, inner east. And then more recently, in June of this year, he ran for, uh, he ran to be the Green Senator for Victoria, the state that I live in, where Melbourne is. Um, And he lost um, by, I think he got 42% of the votes and Lydia Thorpe, um, the victor, got uh, uh, 58%. yeah, and it's a wide-ranging conversation. Um, we speak about, obviously, his work. We speak about um, his introduction to asylum seeker advocacy because in a past life, he was a commercial lawyer and he kind of began his career in commercial law with an interest, or he began his career wanting to do management consulting. And if any of you know what management consulting is, it's probably the, f- <laughs> the furthest thing away from human rights, uh, asylum seek advocacy. Um, well, well one th- it's not one thing that you'd associate with human rights uh, advocacy. Um, yeah, so we spoke about that and we spoke about uh, Australian politics. And, you know, all of this is still very relevant. We speak about themes that are still on the, on the tip of our tongues. Uh, Islamophobia, racism, migration, asylum seeking, um, conservative politics, progressive politics, all those things. And then we kind of moved on to some more existential conversation. We spoke about, oh, well, Julian revealed this pretty crushing insight into his life, which is that he hasn't been able to remove the dollar sign from his ability to decide whether or not his life has been meaningful for him. Um, In other words, he hasn't been able to, he hasn't been able to feel as though things have been valuable for him unless he's been given a huge money reward, monetary reward for those things. So yeah, that's a very, I don't know, I guess it's an unsettling thing to hear from one of Australia's foremost uh, you know, advocates for things that I care about a lot. Um, yeah. Okay. So if you're enjoying Alex listens or any of the other work I do, you can support it in a number of ways. And I guess I rely on you, the listener to support the podcast. Um, you can support it by becoming a patron on Patreon. It's a very easy platform to use and, you know, you can contribute as little as a few dollars a month and it will help me afford all of the things that I need to afford. And you can find all the links to all of the patronage stuff on www.alex.co slash contribute. 
Um, otherwise, there'll be links in the bio to PayPal, Patreon, wherever. Or, you know, just tell a friend, leave a review on iTunes, follow me, follow me on Instagram at AlexListens, follow me on Facebook at AlexListensProject, or on YouTube. I'm also on YouTube. I make videos. Anyway, thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. And bye. So today we are here with uh, Julian Burnside, Order of Australia and Queen's Council, uh, who was awarded this, this um, officer of the Order of Australia in 2009 for service as a human rights advocate, particularly for refugees and asylum seekers, to the arts and as a patron um, and fundraiser, and to the law, of course. So um, thank you very much for coming on today, Julian. Thank you. It's funny, I... That was under Rudd, I guess Rudd's first government. Right. Mm. Um, I doubt that I would be put forward for an Australian honour these days. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yes. All the, the times are changing. But who knows? This Prime Minister lottery means that yeah. Uh, yeah. anyone, anyone could be anyone. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, true. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. And um, we wanted to ask you uh, about you received a phone call from another lawyer in 2002. And mm. um, this changed your life. Yeah, well, I did the Tampa litigation in 2001 and got involved in the asylum seeker issue, having learnt all sorts of very uncomfortable things about it. But mm. in, in May of 2002, I got a call from a bloke who'd been looking after a family of refugees, an Iranian family, mum and dad and two daughters. Mm -hmm. At the relevant time, the daughters were 11 and 7, from recollection, Anyway, the, um, uh, they had escaped Iran in very bad circumstances. They had fled south rather than north and ended up getting to Australia. They were put into Woomera. They spent about 15 months or so in Woomera and they were all doing it pretty tough, especially the 11-year-old girl. Mm. She was assessed as needing urgent daily psychiatric help you know she had stopped yeah grooming yeah. herself stopped feeding herself she was in a really bad way yeah anyway back then at, in Woomera if you had urgent need for psychiatric help you might get to see the visiting psychiatrist once every six or seven months mm. wow she needed daily psychiatric mm -hmm. help the same was true by the way at um, Baxter which replaced Woomera anyway um, the department moved the family to Maribyrnong in the western suburbs of Melbourne so that she could get, so the kid could get daily psychiatric help. But for the first few weeks of their time in Maribyrnong, nobody came to see her. Mm. And on a Sunday night in May of 2002, while her mother and father and her young sister were off having their dinner, this little kid, alone in their cell, took a bedsheet and hanged herself. Oh my but goodness. But she was only little and was still strangling when they got back to the Cell yes. and she and her mother were taken to the general hospital nearby with two ACM guards mm. so that as a matter of legal analysis they were still in immigration detention. Yeah. Um, and Con Karapanagiatidis from the Asylum Seekers Resource yeah. Centre who, and that centre had only been operating for about a year at that time yeah, I okay. think, um, he'd been looking after their asylum claim he heard about it, went to the hospital about half past nine that night, said to the guards that he just wanted to speak to the mother to see if there's anything he could do to help. 
And the guard said to him, no, you can't see them because lawyers visiting ours in immigration detention are nine to five. And wow. he sent them away and he rang me at about 10 that night at mm. home. Mm. And I'm still boiling with anger at that fact. Mm. The fact that we could mistreat a family so badly that a child would try and kill herself and then turn someone away who's just offering ordinary yep. human help. It's just beyond it's inexplicable. belief. It is, it is. And um, yet, and that was that was with Ruddock as, as um, immigration minister, things got worse later. Mm. You know, the explicit deliberate cruelty that Dutton uh, managed under Turnbull, Morrison before him managed under, under Abbott. I, I still find myself puzzled that I was relieved when um, Dutton's run for PM failed and we got scott morrison instead <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean well, you know if you had to compare the two morrison is the more dishonest and the more hypocritical yeah right. it's, it's interesting to read morrison's maiden speech in parliament uh where he actually quotes from the bible to support what he states are his principles <laughs> and the, his principles include loving mm. kindness yeah uh, right. compassion yeah of course. you know yeah. decent treatment of people and so on and so forth well what a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. And what did we what did you just Yeah, actually just today the Guardian published um an article about Scott Morrison. About what he has on his desk. It, but um he's got a trophy on his desk. Which is a um yeah, it's it's quite oh, stop the boats. Oh my yeah. god. Well, I, I stopped the boats. That's yeah, what it says. Yeah, on yeah, his yeah, desk. Yeah. Yeah. This is the prime minister. Um, yeah. yeah, we we did want to ask Well of course that 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 would be absolutely classic Scott Morrison. He's the man he he called boat people illegal more whenever he got the chance. You couldn't yeah. hear him on radio or TV without hearing him say that. Yeah. He issued a directive in the immigration department that immigration officers must thereafter refer to that group who the Migration Act calls unauthorised maritime arrivals. They had to be referred to as illegal maritime yeah. arrivals. Yeah. I mean, he made it official policy for members of the, of the administration to lie to the public. Now, the fact is that boat people don't commit any offence by coming to Australia and Morrison lies about it all the time and told the public service to lie about it too. And, Astonishing. And just so I get it very clear, I call him dishonest because he lies about that issue so much and I call him a hypocrite because he claims to be a Christian while acting in a way which, from my recollection of Christian teaching, is absolutely inconsistent with mm. the fundamentals of Christian yeah. theology. Yeah. If he found Jesus Christ coming to Australia, he'd lock him up. Yeah. 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 yeah geez. Um, and we were, we were listening to your podcast on the ABC yesterday where you spoke about uh, 9-11 because it was the, the 17th um, and oh, the 17th year since the, the 9-11 attacks. And um, you were talking just before about the Tampa crisis marking well, uh, from my studies... I've uh, never called it the Tampa crisis, by the way. It was the Tampa episode. Oh, sorry, the Tampa, Tampa episode, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, which marked the uh, the start of asylum seekers being placed on Nauru mm. and um, possibly even marked... Uh, was around about the time when Islamophobia really took off in Australia. I agree. Um, and so can you please provide us with your thoughts on Islamophobia? Okay. First, first of all, the, the Tampa episode is worth remembering. It was John Howard's last... Hurrah! It was yeah. his attempt to save himself in the polls from the Pauline Hanson uh, vote. Uh, from it? well, I don't know from whoever else threatened him. Yeah, I guess yeah. um, he was hardly an inspirational leader. Mm. Um, and I remember during the Tampa litigation, I had several conversations with David Marr, 
who subsequently published the book Dark Victory about the whole episode, and he said that he would only publish the book that he was writing if Howard got back. Mm. There was that much doubt about whether he would get back. Mm. Um, anyway, so Howard's luck was pretty good because the trial judgment in the Tampa case was handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon in Melbourne on the 11th of September 2001. Jeez. Oh. So eight, eight or nine hours before the attack on America yeah, happened. Right. And all of a sudden, uh, and the election was, what, November 2001. Um, the atmosphere in Australia about yeah. Muslims was poisonous beyond imagining. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so that, and of course, it was after the September 11 attack on America that Howard started calling black people illegal, and um, and the exercise of pushing them away, of course, is called border protection. Yeah. So the average punter who reads, uh, get their news from the Herald Sun, think we are being protected from criminals, mm. which would make sense if it was true, but it's false. Mm. And Jeez. what we're faced with, and what the average member of the public doesn't understand, I think. What we're faced with is this. As a community, if someone falls at our feet, we have a choice. And falls at our feet asking for help, mm. we have a choice. We can help them or we can kick them in the face. Mm. And we've apparently chosen to kick them in the face. Yeah, um, yeah I did want to ask, um, do you think that um, that racism plays a big part in these in, in offshore detention and the Pacific Solution or whether it's one of many things... I think it's one of many things. Um, I think racism is a significant element of it, uh, and Islamophobia is probably a large element of the racism aspect. Yeah. Although, uh, you know, Islam isn't a race; it's a mm, religion. Course, but you know. Course, yeah. Um, but I think underneath it all is fear. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the fear of terrorism is very closely allied with a fear that we'll lose this country, which we've yeah. occupied for 230 yeah. years, yeah. Uh, to the great disadvantage of the people who've lived here for 50,000 yeah. years. Yeah. So, But then, you know, how can you prove these things? Mm. It's just a theory. Mm. Um, so in, in, that, in that interview you did on the ABC, you said that, um, that Islamophobia was the greatest threat to multiculturalism in Australia. Um, and it sounds like... Uh, a lot of a lot of as you said before the the lay person who reads the news every now and then would would think that you know the Australia is under threat under constant mm. threat um, and there's been this this um, this threat of Islamization of the world that's been growing and uh, in fact the the population um, of Muslims in Australia has only increased by zero point six percent in the past decade um, so where where do you think this fear comes from is it because we are an island that's isolated? Is it um, partly that. Partly, I think it's the sort of polit- political dog whistling. Um, mm. You know, the the Islam, um, the fear of Islam is not very far below the surface in anything you hear publicly. And um, but look, I, I I could be wrong about that. Um, I, I think fear is the main driver, and Islamophobia is one of the major drivers of that fear um my question is we we hear a lot nowadays there's a lot more information coming out about the situation for people on nauru um, for people seeking asylum on nauru and manus island and um you know just recently we've had medical staff say that a lot of children are experiencing what's called traumatic withdrawal syndrome where they've basically given up on life this information is out there but 
like sometimes it must feel like you're shouting into the void. Does it does it ever feel like you know nothing is too shocking for this to change? Um, yes, mm. uh, yes, it always feels like nothing is too shocking, and I, I think you know I th- I think I've become accustomed to a lot of what's been happening for the last yeah. seventeen years, having yeah. embarked on this, thinking that all we'd have to do is expose the public to what's actually happening yeah. it would take six months to change yeah. politics yeah. well that was a wrong calculation yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I was astonished um, just uh, a couple of months ago when it was proposed to Peter Dutton who still had the immigration part of home affairs he, it was, he was urged to bring a group of people from Manus to Australia as an act of compassion because those people uh, are in similarly difficult circumstances to mm. the children on Nauru. It's just yep. that kids on Nauru are an easier sell. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, what Dutton said, and I quote, is people need to understand that years of good work could be undone by a single act of compassion. <laughs> now, imagine, imagine, even five years ago, I don't think anyone would have thought that a senior minister of the government could argue against compassion yeah. and yet he did mm. yeah right. right and of course of course um uh dutton also takes responsibility for the fact that um new zealand has twice reiterated its offer to take people from nauru and manus and dutton lives in fear apparently that those people will become citizens of new zealand and will yeah. then yeah. want to come into australia through yeah. the back through door. the back door yeah. yes um, there's something else I want to say about that in a moment, but um, the uh, he he said publicly and correctly that it's entirely a question for Nauru or PNG on the one hand, yeah, and New Zealand on the other hand. But he said they should be aware of the trade consequences mm. of yeah, doing it. Is it. Unbelievable. Yeah. But the other thing, the other thing to refer to about is, I've had messages from people held on Manus that they want us to stop using the the hashtag bring them here because they don't want to come here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really Why do not you? want to come yeah. to Australia because yeah. their attitude, their view of Australia has been so tarnished yeah. by our behaviour. Yeah, so in these crazy times where there are such violent, there, there is such blatant disregard for compassion, um, how do you stay sane? How is one... How Especially with your career where you do work with such intense... Um, travesties of justice how do you separate your work from your personal life how do you do you find it hard not to take all of this stuff home do you are you able to sleep you look rested i mean you're looking <laughs> looking sharp but yeah well scotch whiskey helps <laughs> <laughs> uh, the poison good, good red wine <laughs> yeah of course um, i mean no you, you look i'm not i'm never inclined to give up and um, this is one where i think we need to we need to understand what is going on i mean my my principal concern for years has been the way we treat asylum seekers which is terrible but it's becoming um in some ways overwhelmed by a concern about what sort of country we're becoming mm. i i think Australians need to stand back and take a very steady look at what we're doing and ask, is this really what this country is? Yeah. You know, the fact that we've we've now got um, a bit over 100 children in Nauru, some of whom have never had a moment of freedom in their lives because yeah, they were crazy. born in Nauru or rather born to parents 
held in Nauru. And those, we, we, we are treating children so that even children of primary school age are trying to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. What sort of country are we that will do that to children who've committed no offence, children who desperately need the help that we can give them? Yeah. Um, so do you think we've had a, a couple of questions from um, listeners who um, yeah, listen to our uh, podcast and people are very interested in how to change this because, um, you know, there's quite a culture at this university and in Melbourne of protests and signing petitions. Um, do you think either of these methods are useful or would you say it's more about a slow, gradual change informing people, having those hard conversations that will ultimately, you know, um, change this situation? If I knew the answer to that, I would have done it already. <laughs> yeah. Nothing I have done has worked. Yeah. Okay? So I, don't, I just don't know. Yeah. Um, one thing is I'm, as a lawyer, I'm not allowed to encourage people to break the law. Of course. Um, so I can't urge the forms of protest that might work. Of course. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so my mother's family migrated to Australia from, from Eastern Europe in the early 60s. And um, since then, the, so that was my grandparents. My mum was born in, in former Yugoslavia. Um, and since then, the siblings of my grandparents, they have tried to migrate to Australia. But um, that was 20, 30, 40 years after. But it was too late. Um, the laws were, it was strict. The borders were shut. Um, and I have, I have been to Eastern Europe, to Macedonia, where my mum's from. And I have really struggled uh, just to reconcile the, f- the fact that I, my family, my grandparents were able to come and their siblings weren't just because it was a matter of mm. time. Do you have any advice for me? Well, I, I think, um, well, I probably don't have advice for you, oh, right, but, right, no. but, but can I say, I think that's looking at a slightly different aspect of the problem that I've been concerned with. Right, right. We have three streams of refugees who come into Australia. The first are the people in our offshore resettlement program by which we choose who will come. And we bring them here and we treat them well. And not every country has a similar system. And I think it's to our great credit that we do it. Of course, it has a quota. Um, People can debate about whether the quota is too small, but that's a separate issue. The second group are people who are able to get a visa to come to Australia, um, tourist visa, study visa, whatever, and they come here, and once they've cleared passport control at the airport, they apply for protection. Mm, yeah. Those people are then allowed to live in the community. They cause no apparent trouble or concern to anyone. Most Australians aren't the faintest degree aware yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. And the third group are people who can't get a visa because they come from countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan, and their Hazaras. So they're obviously... Um, likely to be successful as refugees or Rohingyans from Myanmar or Tamils from Sri Lanka these are people who are as likely to be genuine refugees as Jews from Germany in the late 1930s now they can't get a visa to come to Australia for a holiday for study or for anything else Mm. because the department reckons that if they are allowed in they will apply for asylum as soon as they've cleared passport control now It's the third group that I'm worried about. The third group are the ones who cannot get a plane ticket because they can't get a visa. Of course. Uh, 
they the their only way of escaping is either to head north to Europe or head south and come down and end up in Indonesia and then then they have a difficult choice from Indonesia. Mm. Um, those are the people who fall at our feet asking us to help them. Mm. And that's why I say we've got a choice. You mm. help them or you kick them in the face. Right. Now, John Howard famously said in the election at the end of 2001, we will decide mm. who comes to the country and the circumstances in which Mostly, they come. Yeah. Okay. Um, I understand the sentiment. If it's an expression of immigration policy, it's impeccable. Mm bit harsh but it's impeccable if it's an expression of refugee policy it's absolutely flat out wrong mm. um, and the analogy i've used before is is this i'm entitled to say i will decide who comes to my house and the circumstance in which they come mm. and if i'm fed up with having visitors calling in i can say i'm not having visitors till thursday week yeah. that would seem a little unfriendly but it's legitimate yeah <laughs> Um, so what happens next morning? A kid runs up to the front door saying, help me, there's a man with a big knife chasing me. Yeah. I could say come back on Thursday yeah. week, <laughs> but I won't. Mm. Of course not. Um, what, what I would do is bring her in, sit her down, check her story, and if she's telling the truth, protect her, and if she's not telling the truth, send her home. Yeah. Mm. Now, that's the equivalent of boat people who yeah. come mm. here. Yeah. And it's the mistreatment of boat people that I'm particularly worried about because you cannot brutalize innocent human beings mm. and yet that's what we're doing yeah. and to hold them hostage as a warning to other people that they shouldn't even yeah. bother trying to come yeah. here you know morrison brags about stopping the boats well good on him he's turned away jesus christ and all the other people who actually need help yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um so i think part of that i mean i mean a lot of people obviously don't want to see boats coming and people drowning at sea and uh, obviously, oh, that, but that's one but, of the great political lies. Yeah, they say they're worried about people drowning. Yeah, yeah. What bullshit! Are, I screen, do not believe yeah. them. Yeah. I don't believe them for an instant. Because if they were worried about people drowning, they wouldn't punish the ones who don't drown. Mm -hmm. And yet, that's precisely what they do. But mm. and isn't isn't it also true that you know if you do turn a boat around, that people are just going to die somewhere else? So it's not on our conscience, right? But we're not allowed to know about it because no, it's non-water matter. Yeah, of course. Mm. We how can that we, happen in modern day democracy? I don't know. I, but have a look at America. Weird things happen in modern democracy. True. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's true. Um, but the 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 but turning boats around not only involves a serious risk of uh, people drowning, about which we know nothing. It also involves us engaging in people smuggling against our own laws, because mm. people smuggling in our law is defined as. Um, arranging or facilitating the entry into a country of which a person is not a national and without them going through passport control mm. and doing yeah, it right. for a benefit. A yeah. benefit, okay? Not for payment, a benefit. Yeah. Well, what do we do? Do we think all the people on the boats we turn back are all Indonesians? No, no. not. Do we think they'll be going through passport control? No, no. not. Uh, do we get a benefit? Well, ask the politicians. Mm. The benefit that they get is they get to brag about stopping the boats yeah. and they get to and have, have a, a, trophy. Little, a trophy on and, the and table. have a trophy yeah well yeah. I wouldn't regard that little trophy as a benefit but <laughs> no, of course there you go. no. Um, so uh, Liam and I were trying to figure out earlier today what it is that um, people who fear asylum seekers what it is that they wish to protect um, is it is it privilege is it the isolation of privilege that they want is it do they want to point a finger at someone and say hey look there are all of these things wrong with you but here where we are the air is clean there's water there's food i deserve this you don't is that is that what's happening i don't know it may depend on which group you're talking about 
Um, a lot of people who migrated to Australia were persuaded to embrace the John Howard line because they had to wait for sometimes for years before they were able to migrate here. Right. Um, people who've come here from uh, refugee camps overseas have probably had to wait even longer. Mm. And so the queue jumper tag mm. got a run and um, Australians seem to be united in their dislike of queue jumpers. Although when someone is chasing you with a knife or a gun, mm. I'm not sure that the etiquette of the checkout at Coles yeah, really lies really anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. Um, another maybe fear. Uh, it, it's really hard to tell. Right. It's really hard to tell. I, just, right. I don't know the right answer to that. But there are. But yeah. I think different groups will have different reasons for mm. embracing. I mean, some might just be as simple as this. We're being protected from criminals. That's good. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, very unjustifiable because how. Oh, it's untrue. Uh, yeah, of mm. course. Of course. Mm. Um, we interviewed Dr. Peter Singer on this podcast uh, about a month ago now, and we spoke a lot about this relationship between emotion and reason. Mm. And. Um, you speak a lot on politics in Australia um, in these days. And do you think that um, what goes on in the public arena is much more a case of emotion and perhaps often dog whistling more than it is a reasoned discussion of the pros and cons? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I would have a look at the way politicians try and sell their message. It appeals to emotion rather than to reason. Mm. I mean, what... think the the reason would have you adopt a totally different approach to mm. boat people for a start the number of boat people is tiny oh, it's, mm, yeah. um, um, second australia is, is in the next few years i gather australia's demographics are going to reach an interesting point for the very first time in our history we'll have more people older than 45 than younger than 45 oh right? really Jeez. and that has pretty profound implications. Mm. And it's not surprising when you consider that the baby boomers like yeah, me yeah. are all yeah. cruising towards the cliff. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and so what we really need as a matter of demographics in the near future is more people who are young mm. and active and of course, yeah. who want to work. Yeah. Mm. Well, take a look at the boat people and ask yourself a question. Yeah. Mm. Most of them are young. Most of them want to work. All of them have had the courage and the initiative yeah. to get here the way they did. Yeah. And we aren't actually as tiny and crowded as Nauru is, for yeah. example. Yeah. I don't know. A lot of people don't understand. They think to us, oh, Nauru, Manus, they're just places you can send people. Nauru is two square kilometres smaller than Tullamarine Airport. Gee. It is a tiny, tiny And it's country. a phosphate mine, isn't it? It was a phosphate mine. Yeah. It's now basically empty of phosphate. Mm. Um, it's a wreck of a place. It's, its population is 9,500. Mm. Uh, anyway, so that's that's it. The other the other thing that I think is worth bearing in mind is how much we spend mm. mistreating oh. boat people, the very people who could actually help us. Mm. Um, we are spending billions of dollars every year. At the moment, we are spending just on the offshore processing component. We're spending six hundred and fifty four thousand dollars per refugee per year to keep them in the places where they are. That's that's. Crazy, it's disgraceful. Yeah, it is. It's it crazy. Is. And 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 we could, you know, there's at the moment there's the estimates are there are eighty million refugees in the world, mm. of whom about 
20 million are on the move. The rest are internally depla- mm. displaced. Yeah. Now, uh, let's pretend all those 80 million need somewhere to go. The world's population is just on 8,000 million. So one thousandth of the world's population yeah. needs somewhere else to go. Yeah. Can we cope? Yeah, I think we probably <laughs> yeah. could. They're not all trying to come here. Yeah. Um, the, the arrival well, they rate, don't want to. No. <laughs> the arrival rate of boat people in Australia uh, tracks parallel to the movement of refugees globally. Right. Except it's a much, much lower level. Yeah. I did some calculations recently. Um, of course, there are plenty of people in the community in Australia who've come here on visas for you know, holidays and backpackers, that sort of thing, and they've stayed on when their visas expired. Mm. Um, Those number, Brits. Hmm? Those Brits. Or, well, Brits, Fruit Europeans, picking. Americans, that yeah. sort of thing. You know, non-coloured, non-Muslim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, non-problem. But those, there's, at, at the moment, according to the government's website, there are 64,000, I think, visa overstayers wow. in the community. That's only slightly fewer than the number of boat people who've come to Australia since 1976. Gee. <laughs> and how many on, are on Nauru and Manus now? Uh, the total at the moment is about 1,630 or thereabouts. Yeah. So a tenth. I don't. I don't think you'd notice it. No, if they not at all. Here. Absolutely um, not. And I suspect that the government is going to bring them in very quietly without wanting to acknowledge mm. that they've done the decent thing. Yeah, mm. right. But the, the you know, I'm often asked what I would do if I could. You know, given politics, it's a very complicated game and a lot of selfishness involved. If I could go to Canberra and wave a magic wand, oh, so we, we, we were, were going to ask I, this. I, was, yeah. I would not be interested in going into politics. But if I could just yeah. go there and wave a magic wand. I'd replace the present policy with this. I'd say, first of all, close down offshore processing. ScoMo, are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> of course he's not. <laughs> Why would he listen to me? <laughs> Jeez. I'd shut down offshore processing for good and all. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just get rid of it. It's ludicrously expensive. It's cruel. It's awful. It's just not what we should be as a country. Yeah. Second, I would say, okay, I will assume the boats will start coming again. Right. And I'm prepared to assume that the arrival rate will standardise at the highest ever arrival rate in our history. Sure. Um, at least our history since 1788. Yeah. Um, and I would say, okay, those people, if they come without an invitation, without prior authorization, by all means put them in detention, but limit the detention to one month and use that month for preliminary health and security yep, checks. Yep, yep. I think that's a reasonable... Um, and then at the end of one month, I would say re- give them visas and release them into the community, but the visas would have a number of conditions. One is that they're allowed to work, yeah. which is basic to human dignity yeah. and also useful for the community. Two, they have full access to Medicare and Centrelink benefits. Yeah. And three, f- until their refugee status is finally decided, they must live in a specified regional town or city, yeah, yeah, yeah. not in the coastal capitals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if that happened, um, and if you assume that every single one of them stayed on full Centrelink benefits for a few years, yeah. if you assume that, and it's very unlikely, but assume that, 
that would cost us much less than $654,000 per year because Centrelink isn't quite that generous. And, of course, all of it would be spent in the economy of the regional towns or cities where they're living because when you've paid for food and accommodation and some clothing, there's not much left over. So we're not having a reasonable discussion in the public debate at all. We we could actually, by that change in policy, we could we could stop doing harm, and we could benefit the community at large by um, having people here who like us and who mm. feel grateful to us mm. and who want to work. Yeah, and we could actually directly benefit regional Australia. Yeah, and I'd I'd even consider saying, well, look, at the end of their refugee status assessment. For the first two years of their protection visa, um, they must live in regional Australia generally. Not yep. in the specified regional town, but in regional Australia. Yep. Mm. Now, people tend to overlook there's 5 million people living in regional Australia. Mm-hmm. The rest, the other 20 million live in the coastal capitals. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, if you did something like that, the numbers would actually sort of not be very relevant amongst mm. the 5 million. Mm. The benefit... Uh, economically to regional Australia would be good because, yep. you know, regional Australia has got a lot of empty accommodation yep. as people leave yep. to get to the crowded capitals. Yep. I think it would be... It would work a lot better. Yep. Mm. And we could hold our head high mm. um, and then we can start concentrating on important other important things mm. like climate change. Mm. Yeah. So it's not just in Australia where um, think the things you have suggested aren't being implemented. It's almost all across the world, it seems the trend is to move further and further to the right. Um, do you have any thoughts as to why the Western world specifically um, is doing this, why the movement is more to the right? I haven't a clue. Right. Um, um, politics just isn't my thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right, we have moved to the right. Um, I mean, I remember when I was growing up, Labor, the Labor Party used to be a party of the left. Mm. But the centre has moved so far to the right mm. now mm. that most of the Labor Party has caught up with it. Mm. Um and there's a thing, there's a thing that students can do, agitate within the Labor Party for them to change their approach to mm. treatment of boat people. Mm. Because I understand there's a fairly significant minority segment yeah. in the Labor Party yeah. who actually want to do the thing decently. Mm. Yeah. Well, I know, especially amongst young people, that that is a major issue as to why they're turning towards the Greens and away from the yeah. Labor Party. Yeah. Um, but going back to... Um, you said you mentioned before when you were growing up um what we wanted to know was um is it true that you started out really wanting to go into management consultancy and and why did this change um uh yes it's true uh there's a bit of a story to it um i got into various faculties when i finished year 12 i really didn't know what to do but i was offered places in four or five faculties yeah I did law at Monash because a person I knew was doing law at Monash. And I thought, well, at least I won't be lonely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, I had no particular intention of being a lawyer. I actually wanted to be an artist. Wow. Um, And then I thought, it would be good to have an income. And back then, (laughs) we're talking late 60s, management consulting was the occupation du jour. So I picked up an economics degree with a view to being a management consultant. But then in, I think, my second last year of university, I was invited to take part in the InterVarsity Mooting Team for Monash. Mooting is, for your non-law student listeners, yeah. mooting is like a pretend court. Yeah. 
And um, back then, it was not a compulsory occupation. Uh, it was really for nerds, so of course I gravitated to it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Did it quite a lot. Yeah. And um, and the InterVarsity meeting in the year I was invited to be on the team was in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And having never even been to Tasmania, the idea of a free trip to New Zealand was pretty yeah, pretty yeah. good. Yeah. So I did that, and I won the Blackstone Cup as the best individual speaker, which mm-hmm. was very exciting. And the Chief Justice of New Zealand had presided over the final moot, and at the drinks prize giving thing he asked me what i was going to do mm. and i wasn't prepared to say i want to be an artist so i said oh, i think of being a management consultant he said oh you should go to the bar mm. <laughs> and which bar was he talking well about? that's a good question it only occurred to me it only occurred to me a few years ago it would be hilarious if what he really meant was go and get another glass yeah, of wine exactly. <laughs> <laughs> your, your career was a mistake a misunderstanding oh, well, a misunderstanding yes yeah. but then but then maybe more operatively, at the end of that year, one of the other members of the mooting team, a bloke called Bill Wallace, gave me for Christmas a book about Clarence Darrow. And Clarence Darrow was one of the really great trial lawyers in America in the first half of the 20th century. And I read that and I thought, oh, my God, if that's what being a barrister is, that's for me. <laughs> so, um, A barrister, not a barista? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like us, that's yeah, art we'll, students yeah, who will be... Doing an arts degree, yeah. I think. <laughs> we'll be baristas. The, the local cafe, uh, yeah. I think the, the oh, you could go into politics. <laughs> no, true. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you have had a long career in corporate law. Um, and so, my question is, after having sold your soul to the devil by, <laughs> by getting into corporate law, have you since been able to to prize it back through your altruistic pro bono work. Or, or maybe you haven't sold your soul at all. Maybe I, I don't think I sold my soul. Ah. <laughs> that's very harsh. Uh, yes. Because that, I, guess, I guess that's what, um, at least for those that aren't, that aren't in corporate law and that don't study commerce, that's what it seems like. It, a lot of the time it does seem like, um, yeah, the opposite of what you would associate with Julian Burnside. That's uh, a view from outside. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, to be candid and just between us, <laughs> um, it's it's been doing the pro bono work and sort of becoming known as a human rights barrister has been very damaging to my career. Mm. Right. In the sense that um, I was going to ask, it has actually, knocked my yeah. income around very badly. Yeah, mm. right. That doesn't matter in a practical sense. That doesn't matter because you know I could easily retire and be quite happy. But uh, my Self-image is such that being well-known as a human rights lawyer does not overcome the problem that I've always assessed myself according to my income. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I spend every day feeling like a failure, mm-hmm. which is not a nice way to be. No, it isn't, mm-hmm. especially when you've been awarded or of the Australia Sydney Peace Prize your Queen's Council lawyer. Actually, you know, the, of all of all the awards, the Sydney Peace Prize is one that I value the most. Really? Oh. Okay, I think uh, I read that. First in of all, Sydney because it's a very limited field. Yeah. And second of all, because when I won it, I got a congratulatory email from Noam Chomsky. Really? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. Wow. He won it a few years earlier. Okay. Well, may, maybe he just had a stand the thing that he had sent a congratulations <laughs> to. It was networking. But I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so you just said that... Uh, yeah, well, well, it seems at least the way I've felt that I've been socialized, um, and Liam, I think Liam agrees, is that we're socialized to expect happiness to follow money. Mm. 
um, and to social and to to associate you know happiness gratification validation mm. satisfaction with you know a big big dog career yeah. um, high flying all that stuff but uh Here's a statistic that people have been throwing around a lot um, and that I actually looked it up to confirm it, that people change a career on average five times during their lifetime. Um, That's a very modern occurrence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. It is. Um, but for, for us younglings, yeah. um, that, that might be the reality for us. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering, uh, have you found fulfillment? Um, are, you, are you happy? Um, is, is this, have you found your niche? Um. I don't know. Maybe it found me. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I really cannot work out my personal orientation on this one because I'm strongly of the view that people need to follow the career that attracts them, mm. and income is almost irrelevant. Mm. And yet, I feel like a failure if my income isn't mm. what it used to be mm. um now my um i think my very favorite short story is a short story by by um, frederick raphael called benchmark it's about a bloke whose father is a barrister and he grows up with the unstated expectation that he'll become a barrister yeah. but as a young teenager he starts writing poetry mm. and he's not bad at it mm. and he keeps writing poetry after all his young teenage friends have stopped doing it and he keeps writing poetry, does well at school, gets into uh, university studying law, keeps writing poetry, and then he meets the girl who he later marries and she gently persuades him to concentrate on law, not worry about poetry. He does that and he does well, becomes a barrister, does well, becomes a QC and is eventually offered a seat on the bench. Mm. He's be appointed a judge so he has to spend a weekend in his chambers clearing out the accumulated paperwork of a life as a barrister mm. and the last paragraph of this story is a killer i cannot escape it <laughs> it says he came across a batch of his old poems at the bottom of a cupboard and decided to take a read of them for a laugh he expected them to provide clinching evidence of the folly of youthful pretension instead those unburnt embers passed judgment on his life. Mm. He sat on the floor of his dusty cave and covered his eyes to escape their indictment. But the unblinking eye in the centre of his forehead gazed and blazed with unique and undeniable vision. And he realised that the years of his life had escaped mm. like Odysseus's men under the panicky sheep of the blind, deluded Polyphemus. Whoa. And he cried, who are you? Who are you? And the man who had blinded himself replied, no one. Mm. <laughs> wow! I don't think I've ever heard that sentiment expressed in such a powerful way. Yeah, wow. because I mean, as you said before, you wanted to be an artist, and you've—am I right in saying married I, an artist? I, I, yeah, I, I yeah. did. I, I don't regret having not chosen against being an artist because yeah. I don't have anything like the artistic talent that my wife has. <laughs> and of course, the field of art that I thought I would concentrate on when I was at university was photography. Really? But one of our friends is Bill Henson, and there's no way in the fit <laughs> I could take photographs that are as good as yeah, his. Yeah, right. And, um, yeah, you also are a big patron of the arts. Um, yeah. Is that because you believe that, you know, it, it makes the world a better place? It's because I believe it makes the world a better yeah. place, and it's profoundly important. Support the arts because that means that... Um, the environment for artists is slightly less hostile, slightly more encouraging, 
Yeah. I mean, I don't for a minute imagine that I'm picking winners in the arts. Mm. No one can do that with any confidence. Yeah. Um, but if you make the environment for the arts better, then the people who are ultimately going to be truly great have a better chance of survival, and that's very important. Now, um, I don't know if you come across a thought experiment that I dreamt up a while ago. If you take a room full of people, say 40 or 50 people, all of fair intelligence and fair education, but no actual artists, and give them all a list of names from the last half dozen centuries, I guarantee you that disproportionately they'll recognise the names of painters, composers, sculptors, Mm. novelists, poets. They won't recognise the names of accountants, lawyers, management consultants. Do you think... um, I think um, I heard an interesting TED talk recently about how education in modern the West um, actually pushes people away from art and towards things like accounting, um, which is a great shame, really. Yeah, Um, because it's all driven by a desire for income. Yeah, Mm. true, Mm. yeah. Right. Um, and that actually brings us back nicely to another conversation Liam and I had this morning, um, which was in, in trying to identify what it was that anti-asylum seeker voters um, were trying to keep for themselves. It was that money. It was the access to resources and to privilege. Um, do, you, do you agree with this? Do you think it is the fear that someone is going to come and nab their job? Someone is going to come and outbid their house? Um, because if it is... Then, um, is capitalism perhaps not the best system for us? Well, I, I think I'll try and avoid that <laughs> right. <like> extension. <laughs> but um, the if if your theory is right, it's because people have a complete misunderstanding of the numbers. Mm. Um, I mean, the idea that our good fortune will be diluted if twenty five thousand or even fifty thousand asylum seekers came here every year it is delusional i mean it just isn't going to happen mm, is it yeah um, but i think it taps into a larger theory which is that if you look at the world's population and consider the distribution of wealth in the west compared to the distribution of wealth in asian countries um, there is no doubt that many people in asian countries have very little and most people in Western countries have a lot. Mm. And if you redistributed the world's population uniformly, then people like us would all see a diminution in our yeah. wealth. Yeah. Now, that is a scenario which is highly unlikely to occur, but it it gives rise to a rational fear. Yeah, yeah. And one which politicians can exploit if yeah. they feel a need to. Yeah, mm. true. Right. Um, so I actually I studied law at Monash for a few years. Unfortunately, I wasn't I wasn't as resilient as you, and I couldn't push past the uh, the narcissist and the the sociopaths. But uh, I I lasted a few years. Um, and while I was there, I because I was public school educated um, at a school just not too far from here, and I noticed that many of the students, if not the majority, were private school educated. Um, do you do you feel like this is a problem? Uh, it's not an issue that I've thought about enough, so I really don't think I have a view. Okay. Um, 
you've previously quoted Israeli philosopher, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's Avishai Magalit, Magalit yes. um, in a TED Talk of yours, uh, who said that, I quote, the possibility of dignity is fundamental to a contented and meaningful existence. Why do you find this quote so powerful? <coughs> the, um, <coughs> pardon me. the reference to Magalit was really by way of um, qualification of John Rawls's theory of a just society. Right. Um, John Rawls's theory of a just society was that a just society um, is one in which all the goods in society are distributed uniformly on on equal terms to everyone. Right. And if there is going to be any inequality of terms, it would be by reference to disadvantage at the start. Yeah. Um, so in other you know, sort of affirmative action. Yeah, uh, and as a very clever addition to this, he said that the people who are designing the just society should do so from behind the veil of ignorance. Mm. So they would not know which position in the society they're creating uh, yeah. they would occupy. Yeah, yeah which yeah. is you know the, every kid at yeah. primary school understands that. You know, you cut the cake, I'll choose the slice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, Avishai Margalit, um commented on Rawls's theory of a just society and asked the question whether a just society could tolerate the existence of humiliating institutions. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, he explains that humiliating institutions um, is meant to be understood literally. So he says, imagine, for example, there's a, a village somewhere in Africa with a hundred people living there and they all need a bag of rice. Yeah. And so a truck comes with 100 bags of rice. Yeah. He says there are two ways of ensuring a just distribution. One is to have people handing out a bag to each person. Yeah. And the other is to tip it on the ground and have a couple of armed guards standing around who will shoot anyone who tries to take more than one yeah. bag. Mm. He says each results in a just distribution, but the second is humiliating. Yeah. Mm. And um, he then goes on to say that um, the possibility of dignity is the most fundamental good that society has to offer yeah. and therefore no just society can tolerate humiliating institutions. Yeah. And I, while I can see that it's a contestable proposition, I agree with him. Yeah. And I think um, we, can't, we can't be satisfied that we live in a just society if we tolerate humiliating institutions yeah. like indefinite detention yeah. of innocent human mm. beings. Yeah, yeah. Um, on that note of indefinite detention of um, refugees, how is it actually legally possible for um, the government to do this? Because um, I'm no legal scholar at all, but I do do know uh, about the writ of habeas corpus, right, which, um, as, as far as I understand, ensures that people um, must be brought before a jury or at least a court um, to prove that there is lawful grounds for their detention. How is there lawful grounds for indefinite detention? Okay. Um, habeas corpus actually means let us have the body. Right. We, it's it's a direction from a court to a person who's detaining someone else to identify the legal foundation for the detention. Mm -hmm. Typically, it will be this person was convicted by a court and sentenced to imprisonment, and that's why they're being kept. Yeah. Um, so habeas is a, a remedy that tests the legality of detention. It, yeah. it doesn't mm -hmm. go to the legality of detention as right. such. Right, Um in Australia, the uh, detention of unauthorised maritime arrivals is 
dealt with in the Migration Act, which says in substance that if a person is a non-citizen and does not have a visa, then they must be detained and remain in detention until they get a visa or until they're removed from the country. Yeah. That's the detention system in a nutshell. Yeah. And it sort of morphed into shoving them off to yeah. Nauru or Manus. Um, the legality of that is governed only by a constitutional doctrine called the separation of powers. Mm -hmm. The separation of powers says that the three arms of government each have separate powers, the legislature, the executive and the judicial arms of government have separate powers yeah. and no arm of government can exercise the powers which are the exclusive domain of another arm of government. Mm, yeah. And the separation of powers doctrine long since decided that punishment is the exclusive domain of the judicial arm. Mm -hmm. So the parliament can pass a law saying if a person is convicted of X offence, yeah. they can be punished by imprisonment of up to so many years. Yeah. But they can't say that that person must, this person identified, must go to jail for five years. Right. Mm. Um, that has to be done by a court. Yeah. The court decides whether they've committed the offence and then decides how they should be punished. Yeah. Mm. Now, in a significant case in 2004, the High Court had to deal with the indefinite detention system mm. and they said the separation of powers, I mean, well, it goes back longer than that, the separation of powers doctrine isn't offended where a person is being de detained for administrative purposes. So if, oh, right. if the purpose of detaining them is to determine whether they are entitled to a protection yep. visa mm. or in order to arrange for their removal, then that's, yep. not, pun that's not punishment, right. it is administrative detention. Right, right. And so that's what and, it's and then And then in 2004 there was a decision called Al-Khateb, which most Australians have never heard of, which says that... Um, person who comes here as a boat person in substance um, and who cannot be removed from the country but has been refused a visa, that person can remain in detention for as long as it takes to sort out how to remove them. Right. Uh, the, the underlying factor in Al-Khateb was a stateless Palestinian who'd not been granted a protection visa mm. and returning a stateless Palestinian to Palestine yep. is yep. very difficult. Yeah. Mm. And in theory, that case means that an innocent human being could be held in detention for the rest of his life. Mm. Mm. That's, um, that is there, there are, There's a case on its way to the High Court now which is designed to challenge Al-Khateb to say that after a certain amount of time, where the difficulties are so great, you cannot continue to hold a person. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, we're quite short on time, so maybe one or two more questions. But... I just wanted to ask you, um, in this time of, of opportunity for many young Australians, um, what would you advise people to do? Would you, because there is an oversupply of lawyers, this is a well-known fact, there are too many people being pumped out by the law schools. Um, so what would you suggest is, is a, a fulfilling or rewarding uh, career path or perhaps a way to get involved? How can, how can people do this? Um, I, I cannot possibly answer that for everyone. Uh, I think what they need to do is ask themselves what they want to do for their career. Mm. Ignore what your parents say. Ignore what your career mm. guidance teacher says. Salary doesn't matter. D <laughs> oh, it uh, does. Well, <laughs> people, yeah. read that story by Frederick Raphael. I will. Yeah, you know, okay. um, do not find at the end of a successful career that you are no one. Mm. Mm. Um, I think um, that's probably about yeah. all we have time for. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, 
Yeah, that's probably... Oh, just one last question. Okay. Um, this is a question we've tried to ask all, all of the guests we've had on so far. Oh, yes. Um, so, tomato sauce. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you enjoy tomato sauce? But that's not the actual question, but just... just okay, I'll ask... Uh, I, yeah, I don't mind tomato sauce, not by itself. Okay, yep. well, do you put it in the fridge or in the cupboard? In the cupboard. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> okay, Liam, I think that's three, two. Yeah, yeah. yeah We've asked true. all our guests. It seems to be the, the well, hottest Well, hang on. Topic. I mean, if, if you really want independent verification or justification... Have a look at the supermarkets. Where do you find tomato sauce? Yes. No, no, yeah, not, right. in the cool, not in the cold But that's because market. it hasn't been opened. You find it on... Mm. Mm. Oh. Technicality. Oh. Technicality. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, it doesn't doesn't last that long after it's been opened. You know, you don't keep it there forever. No, you don't. Yeah, you but don't. it's probably got a lot of preservatives, so it probably doesn't need to be in the fridge. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. some people... I think it's nice. Some people fridge. who are wrong put it in the fridge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. It's Tom. okay. I mean, look, if, if you if you... The same people who put their tomato sauce in the fridge probably leave the fridge door open in order to combat yeah. climate oh, change. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming in today, Joy. And that thank was, you. That was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, cheers. And before, before we wrap mm. up, can yeah. I just say, I reckon people who are looking for an issue to be involved in should think about climate change. Mm. I think it is the number one global issue today. Yeah. Your generation is going to have to sort it out. Yeah, mm. we are. It's Refugee scary. treatment is a second order issue. It's important it just happens to be the issue I'm involved in, but climate change is the number one issue. You can live down in the shed, but I swear, yeah, I swear. Yeah, man, I swear I got a vision. Yeah. But there ain't no money in this business yeah. So how long can I keep it doing this shit? Yeah. Like forever dance, now I'm feeling I'm feeling Yeah, yo, I got ambition Nah, but there ain't no money in this business Yeah, so how long can I keep it doing this shit? Yeah, live forever, that's how I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling.